please rise for the doxology. Praise God from Good morning. It's a, it's a joy to be with you all this morning. As Camper mentioned earlier, uh, my name is Matthew Capone, and I lived in Williamsburg for several years and worshiped here at Grace Covenant until this past May when I moved to St. Louis to begin studying at Covenant Seminary. And so I know many of you, and for those of you that I know, I simply want to say thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness to me, your commitment to me by praying for me, uh, by reading my newsletters, by supporting me in my upcoming trip to Israel. I am very grateful for you, and I, I don't take you for granted, and I want you to know that, so thank you. For those of you who I don't know, I want to welcome, uh, whether this is your first time or you have been in church for years, this is a place to bring your questions and your joys and your doubts and your faith, and it's a place to, to come and to be, and to be welcomed. What we have learned here at Grace Covenant, and we are continuing to learn as we try to follow after Jesus, is that there's no one here that's so good that they don't uh, need God's grace, and there's no one so bad that they can't have it. And so we're especially grateful for everyone here, because everyone here needs the very same grace from God. This morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 9, so I'd ask that you turn there with me. We all know what it's like to find ourselves in discouraging situations and wonder, what did I do wrong? How did I find myself in this place? And we also all know what it's like to feel numb to the gospel, to feel like it makes no difference in our lives, and perhaps even at times believe that we don't, we don't really need it. And in this passage this morning, Jesus is going to address both of those issues for us. In John chapter 9, we're near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He performs seven signs in John between John chapter 2 and John chapter 11. We're going to look at the sixth of the seven signs. Last week, Camper looked at the seventh sign, the raising of the dead, Lazarus, in John 11. And shortly after the seven signs, Jesus is going to enter into his last week on earth, and that's going to be John chapter 12 through, through 21. And so we're in, nearing the end here of Jesus' earthly ministry, and we're in John chapter 9. Please read with me. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. 
The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes and I wash and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Would you pray with me as we come to this portion of God's word? Dear Father in heaven, you have invited us here, and now we, uh, we invite you. We ask that you would show up uh, by your spirit, that you would speak to us here in words that we can understand. Father, that you would uh, open our eyes 
that you would unstop our ears, that you would soften our hearts, that we could see everything that is written about you and believe. Father, you want this so desperately for us that you sent your spirit. We ask that you would do that now. We ask all these things in the name of your son. Amen. As many of you know, uh, I spent several years here in Williamsburg as a teacher, and if you've ever been a teacher, you know that at the, the end of the first semester around Christmas time, you receive an overwhelming amount of gifts from parents and <coughs> students who are very, very generous and very, very um, thoughtful. At times it can, it can even feel overwhelming. Um, and I received one gift in my second year of teaching that was thoughtful, but perhaps in not, not quite in the same way that the other gifts were. I had a student who on the last day of school gave me a very small uh, bag of coal. And what's a teacher to do in that, that situation? So of course I failed her in Latin the next semester. <laughs> and I figured that she got what she deserved. Um, of course I, I just, I did not fail her. Uh, she intended it as a joke and of course I received it. I don't, I don't think I thought it was quite as funny as she thought it was, but uh, we know that at Christmas no one actually receives coal. But if the paradigm of, of Santa holds up, you know that you receive presents if you're good, you receive coal if you're bad. And so we have the classic Christmas song, he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows you when you're awake, he knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. And the idea behind this, of course, is you get what you deserve. And while we might laugh at the idea of someone actually receiving coal for Christmas, the big problem that we face and the big problem this, this passage this morning presents to us is this that we think that we and others have what we deserve and we get what we deserve. And so if I were to, to talk to one of you this morning and I found out that not as a joke, without, without any irony, that you'd actually received coal uh, this Christmas, I would have to ask, who sinned? You or your parents? Are your parents just that terrible that they gave you coal or were you uh, that terrible that you received coal? Because of course we know that we get what we deserve. And in the Greco-Roman and Palestinian Jewish mind at this time, there was a direct connection between suffering and sin. And so physical disabilities were sort of like coal at Christmas. They were a sign that you had done something wrong. And so the disciples in this story at the beginning of chapter 9, seeing the disability of this blind man, asked what is in many ways an innocent question. Who sinned? This man or his parents? And in this, the disciples are seeking for the very same thing that we seek for. They're looking for a, a spiritual explanation for a very physical situation. And in some ways, the disciples are very, very right. They see the sin and the, the brokenness of the world around them, and they know that it's the result of, of our rebellion against God. They know there's something wrong with our world. And we know that as well, especially this past year. We've seen the chaos of the Islamic State in the Middle East. We've seen the turmoil between Russia and the Ukraine. We've seen the tragedy of Ebola in West Africa. We've seen our own racial division and tension here at home in the US. And even this morning, we heard of the missing uh, flight from Air Asia. And so we know that the effects of sin are all around us. And so the disciples get something very, very right here in this passage. But they also get something very, very wrong. There is not always a one-to-one -one correlation between our circumstances, our suffering, and our sin. Our external circumstances are not a barometer of, of our spiritual condition, of our standing with God. Now, sin and suffering are sometimes related. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 tells the church that they're experiencing physical trouble because of the way that they're abusing the Lord's Supper. But this isn't the normal way that, that sickness works 
in our world. And so the problem with the disciples here is that they look at the result and then assume the cause. They see the result of blindness in this man and assume the cause of sin. Did you notice what Jesus says in verse 3? It's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And Jesus is saying to them in the midst of this wrong question, you don't need to figure out what caused this blindness, but you can know this. I'm still writing this man's story. I'm at work. I'm on the move. Can you see me? Are you able to see? Jesus, he wants his disciples to see spiritual realities, but not as they judge and analyze, but as they behold and worship God at work. He wants them to see God's grace rather than to identify others' failings. And so the disciples' question here reveals their big problem and, and our big problem. And this is, this is the chorus of our passage this morning. We, we say and believe we get what we deserve, and so our suffering is the result of our sin, and our success is the result of our righteousness. And Jesus comes in and says, no, uh, you don't get what you deserve, because I, when I died on the cross, I took what you deserved, and I turned it into my suffering, and now I'm going to take your suffering, and I'm going to turn it into my glory. That's what Jesus says to the blind man here in this passage and to his sincere and mistaken disciples trying to follow after him. And so here when we see the disciples, we encounter people who are, are very much like many of us. They're sincere, they're earnest followers of Jesus who are at the same time sincerely and earnestly wrong about many, many things. And Jesus graciously comes and redirects them and answers their honest question. Now, as, as post-enlightenment people, it, it would be tempting for us to just say, you know, we're, we're too smart to believe that. We know that people's disabilities are not linked to their sin. Uh, and that's a good thing. Part of what's beautiful about our world and our society is the way in which more and more we have compassion and we make room for people with disabilities. That's a good and beautiful thing. But it's tempting at this point to write off the disciples and say, you know, we, we have nothing in common here. And while we might not look at people's physical disabilities and assume their sin, we still want much like the disciples, spiritual explanations for very physical situations. And we're tempted to believe that those around us are getting exactly what we deserve. We probably wouldn't say, you know, who sinned, but perhaps it sounds a little bit like this. Why do you think, why do you think their kids can't behave? Do you think, yeah, I'm just trying to figure this out. Is, um, is it because mom is kind of emotionally disconnected and dad's overwhelmed or there's something I'm not getting here? And Jesus says, yes, there is something you're not getting here. It's my glory. I'm, I'm letting them learn about me and that I'm a father who loves his children as they run from one another and pursue one another. Perhaps it sounds like a little bit like this. There's a, there's a reason she's still single, if you know what I mean. And Jesus says, yes, there is a reason. It's my glory. She's learning about me as she looks, looks to me. And maybe it sounds like this. 
I've kind of noticed recently, and this is, just this is just between you and me, this doesn't leave the table. <laughs> I've kind of noticed that giving and attendance are down. Do you think, is that the pastor's fault or the, the session um, or the deacons? I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to figure this out. What do you think's going on? And Jesus says, yeah, I'm trying to figure something out too. I'm trying to figure out and work out my glory. I'm preparing my people at Grace Covenant on December 28th, 2014 in Williamsburg, Virginia. I'm preparing them for my return, preparing them for when I come back. That's what's going on. I would love to show you, I would love to show you that. And so it's not just the wrong question here, but it's a new paradigm. Jesus is showing the disciples and he's showing us how the gospel works. Perhaps the disciples here, they fear that their spiritual performance affects their standing with God. Perhaps they hope that their spiritual performance affects their standing with God. But if we believe that we get what we deserve, then the places of suffering in our lives also become places of deep, deep shame. We can't face our sin because its consequences are too frightening. We think that it has brought us to exactly where we are. And if we believe that we get what we deserve, then the places of success in our life also become places of tremendous pride. We don't acknowledge our sin because we don't think we really have any. And so, again, our chorus is this. We say we get what we deserve, so our suffering is the result of our sin and our success the result of our righteousness. And Jesus comes and says, you don't get what you deserve because when I died on the cross, I took what you deserve and I turned it into my suffering. And now I take your suffering and I turn it into my glory. Now Jesus doesn't connect it directly to the cross in this passage, but the momentum of the entire book of John is moving in this direction. The seven signs are coming right up to Jesus' Passion Week where he's going to move towards his death and his resurrection. That's the climax of John. That's where all of this is moving and pointing. And so we have to read all the preceding scenes in John in light of John 19 and 20, Jesus' death and his resurrection. Now, after he has this encounter with the disciples, Jesus says something uh, very, very confusing. Did you notice in verses 4 and 5, he says, uh, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus, what are you talking about? Think about it this way. If someone ever comes up to you and says, let's get to work, and you don't know what they're talking about, wait a few seconds and see what they do. And that's probably the work that they want you to get to. And what Jesus does immediately after saying this is he heals the blind man. And so the work uh, that he's talking about is this, his work of, of restoring the world. He is turning blindness to sight. He's letting people know the truth that we've already mentioned, our chorus this morning. You don't get what you deserve because when I died on the cross, I took what you deserve and I turned it into my suffering. Now I take your suffering and I turn it into my glory. My death is going to result in your healing. It's going to restore your sight. It's going to restore your spiritual sight. As you begin to see the world accurately, you see my, my glory at work. And it's going to restore your physical sight. Some during my first coming, when I heal those around, around me, and completely during my second coming, when I come and heal the entire earth. So this is the gospel. This is what is scandalizing and confusing about Jesus as he comes and meets his earnest disciples. He meets self-righteous Pharisees. He meets a helpless blind man.
The question is, when we encounter this grace, when the work that Jesus is doing meets us, how do we respond? We see two main characters in contrast here in John 9, the blind man and the Pharisees, and each show us a different response to God's grace. And by the way, as a note, the Jews and the Pharisees here are the same group. John, John is just varying word choice. So they're referring to the same, the same set of people. We'll look first at the Pharisees. How do they respond to God's grace? How do they react to this knowledge that you don't get what you deserve? Well, the Pharisees believe very strongly that you do get what you deserve. They have lots of good things in society. They have power. They have prestige. They have authority. We see this in kind of the power dynamics of the story. The Jews and the Pharisees are in a place of prominence. They're the ones to whom people run when they have questions. So how do you respond to grace when you believe that you do get what you deserve and you're doing well? Well, we don't have to look hard to find the answer to this question because in verses 8 and 12, the blind man's neighbors and community, much like the disciples, are looking for a spiritual explanation for a physical situation. And so they run to their spiritual leaders, the Pharisees, and they ask them to try to figure this out for them. And the Pharisees' move here is to try to disprove and discredit the story of the blind man. Essentially, they have an informal court hearing. They call a bunch of witnesses. They make arguments. And first, they call in the blind man. In verses 13 through 17, he serves as the first witness. But after they question him, they're unconvinced. You see in verse 18, it says, The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them. So they call in their second witness. First witness doesn't give us the results we want. We'll ask the parents and see what they have to say. The parents are going to know. Is this the same man? They're going to be able to give a conclusive answer because the Pharisees at this point, they think some tricky business is going on. And we're not looking closely at the parents this morning, but the parents have been told for years that they get what they deserve. The disciples are not the first people to come and ask, who sinned, this man or his parents? Perhaps it's felt like coal at Christmas for them for many many years, and we see the result for them. It's fear and shame. And there's an implicit rebuke here at the end. In verse 22, we have an aside from John. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. And so there's an implicit rebuke to their fear and their shame, but at the same time, we can understand They've lived oppressed by this this spiritual untruth for years. It's been said to them over and over by the Pharisees in the community and around them. And so I'll simply say this. The parents are telling us that sometimes we've been told so long, for so long, that we get what we deserve, that we lose sight of the power of the gospel, even when it's right in front of us. The parents have seen their son healed, and yet even that is not enough to undo the trampling that's been done on them year after year after year. The Pharisees continue their trial. They call the blind man a second time to the witness stand, and in verse 24, they tell him to give glory to God. And what they're saying in that is, tell us what really happened. Give glory to God, not to Jesus, because we know that he didn't heal you. And there there are many things going on here in verses 24. 24 through 34. The the Pharisees are making appeals to ceremonial laws. They're making appeals to Moses. They're attacking Jesus' character. And we're not going to get into all of those this morning, but the main point that John is highlighting for us in the midst of all of those is that all of the Pharisees' arguments 
all of this then points to the absurdity of their unwillingness to believe in the face of overwhelming evidence. The Pharisees are absurd. In the light of an overwhelming, surprising miracle confirmed by the man and his parents, and this is what the blind man emphasizes in this last section. In verse 25, he simply repeats the same thing he's been saying over and over. I was blind, now I see. In verse 27, he points out to the Pharisees that they actually have no interest in hearing the truth. He's told it to them over and over, and they still are calling more witnesses. And then in verse 33, he brings it home for us. He says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And so he points to the overwhelming power at work that the Pharisees are unable to see. The blind man is saying this. All the evidence points to the fact that Jesus came and gave me sight. And why don't you believe? I think of the popular clip from The Office where uh, Carl's character is driving around in a car, uh, following his GPS religiously, and it tells him to turn right into a pond. And that's where the road is. And so following his GPS, he turns into the pond and actually drives into the water. He's trusting the guidance of his GPS over the overwhelming reality that surrounds him. And that's what's going on for the Pharisees here. In light of all the evidence around them, but the GPS told me to turn here, but Moses, uh, but Jesus is a sinner, and their car's sitting in the water. Then we get to verse 34, and everything suddenly changes. The Pharisees' absurdity, which was hinted at earlier, is finally revealed. And this verse here unlocks the meaning of the whole passage for us. They say to the blind man, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Where else in this passage have we heard about someone being born? It's the blind man, just born blind. Remember that blindness is a, a sign that you have sinned or your parents have sinned? The irony here is that the Pharisees are saying, you were born in sin, and we know that because you were born blind. But that's what they've been trying to disprove the whole time. There are many ironies in this story, but one of the greatest of them is this. What the Pharisees spend so many verses trying to disprove is exactly what, at the end, they and their anger and their frustration accidentally admit. Did I say that out loud? Whoops. The Pharisees have just enough rope to hang themselves. And the statement doesn't just reveal their hypocrisy, it also reveals their self-righteousness. You were born in sin. Implication, we were not born in sin. And so the Pharisees here are not making a statement about the condition of mankind. If they were, it wouldn't invalidate the blind man's argument. Instead, they're trying to validate themselves and invalidate them. And so they, who we've talked about, have the problem. They believe that they have gotten what they've deserved, and they're doing well. They enjoy prestige and power and influence and ease, and they believe that it reflects their own standing before God. And so even as they acknowledge that the man was born blind, they can't see beyond their own self-righteousness. I began by asking, how do, the, how do you respond to grace when you believe that you do get what you deserve and you're doing well? And what the Pharisees show us is that when you believe that you get what you deserve and you're doing well, you can't see or admit your own sin in spite of all the evidence. That grace, the grace that Jesus presents to us in this passage, that we don't get what we deserve, 
is a threat to our self-righteousness. Grace is always attractive when we want other people to show it to us. Grace is often impossible to see when others need us to offer it to them. And so the Pharisees here, they've just admitted that he was blind from birth and has been healed. They've just revealed their own hypocrisy. And so there's nothing left to do in this court case but to get rid of the evidence. And so in verse 34, we see that they cast him out. And after this defeat at the hands of Jesus, there's little left for them to do but to crucify him. So I mentioned it's the sixth of seven, seven signs that Jesus performs. He's moving very, very quickly towards the cross, as Camper discussed last week. The Pharisees here, if you haven't figured it out already, are a negative example to us. And so John is saying, we must not be like the Pharisees. We must do the opposite of what they do here. What do the Pharisees do? They claim to be without sin. And so we must confess that we are with sin. Many of us don't have a, have a problem with this intellectually, but if we learn anything from the Pharisees, it's that our intellect is often not uh, very helpful to us spiritually. And in, in this passage, faith is not presented as an intellectual problem. In fact, intellectually, the, the facts are right in front of the Pharisees. They have everything that they need. It's a heart problem, and they're not willing to admit that they can't see. And so to know where we fall in this, we also have to ask questions of the heart. How do we do that? Do you know that you must change and that you can't change yourself? Do you know that you're blind and you can't give yourself sight? How do we know? How do we find the answers to those questions? Where do we find the places where we must change? How do we identify them? Where do we say to other people with the Pharisees, you were steeped in sin from birth, but I wasn't. We do this whenever we fail to admit our own contribution to the brokenness of the systems around us or the relationships around us. We're claiming to be without sin. We're in the midst uh, of the holidays, so there's probably plenty of material for all of us to work from here. What are, the, what are the stories you tell yourself? Is the story of your marriage always about how your spouse needs to change? And then everything would be well? Because you're without sin? Is the story of your workplace about how your coworkers, they need to change. And then all would be well, because they were born in sin from birth. Is the story of your family all about how your parents and your siblings need to change? And then everything would be well, because they were steeped in sin from birth. We love to talk about grace in the church, but grace is always easier said than done. Who's the person with the greatest spiritual vision? Who's the, who's the spiritual hero in your family? What this passage is telling us is it's not the person with great spiritual insights. It's not the person with a comprehensive knowledge of scripture. It's not someone with a deep understanding about the problems of the people around them. 
but it is the person who's best able to repent. The person who looks not first to the problems of those around them, but to their own problems. We also learn from the Pharisees that our, our external circumstances are not the litmus test for our spiritual state. It's very tempting for us in, in Williamsburg, Virginia in 2014 to fall into this trap. We know the right people, we went to the right schools, we have the right jobs, we voted for the right candidate, we make the right choices, we say the right things, but none of it makes us right with God. So we have to ask these hard questions. Whether we're right with God depends not on our external circumstances, but on our willingness to admit our own blindness. Did you notice what Jesus says in verse 41? If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus here is, is playing into the Pharisees' argument. In, in verse 34, they use blindness to, meet, to mean born in sin. And so Jesus says, okay, we'll talk about that. We'll use that language. If blindness means that you're born in sin, then you are blind too. And so when, when Jesus speaks in the end here about those who see, what he really means is those who think they can see. And so what we learn from the Pharisees is this. To be cleansed of our guilt, we must confess our blindness. We must admit our sin. Jesus offers the blind man sight. He offers us sight as well. He's willing to bring sight to all of us who have been blind, who have been born in sin. He's willing to show us our need for him and to meet us at that very same point of need. We're in desperate need of rescue and we can't rescue ourselves. Jesus has to come and give us sight. He has to do that this morning. What happens when Jesus comes and gives sight? Well, we don't just have the Pharisees in this passage, we also have the blind man. And the blind man gives us a vision, a picture of belief and discipleship. He grows slowly in his belief in Jesus throughout this passage. But the main, the main theme of the blind man is that he tells his story uh, over and over. He simply talks about moving from blindness to sight again and again and again. We see this in verse 11. He tells his neighbors about how Jesus healed him. In verse 15, he tells the Pharisees about how Jesus healed him. Then he tells the Pharisees again in verse 25, and he delivers one of the most famous lines in all of scripture. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. The blind man offers not philosophical proofs or arguments for the existence of God, but he does offer his own transforming experience of God's grace and power. And so what the blind man has to share is simply his own testimony, his own personal experience of the gospel. He's giving, we might say, a spiritual explanation for a physical situation. And the temptation for many of us this morning and for me as I preach would be to say this, we also must go and witness. Why, why aren't you telling people about how you were blind and then you see? Go and be like the blind man. But the, the example of the blind man here is not meant to lay guilt on us. The blind man tells other people about Jesus. Why can't you? It's not a command. It's a picture and it's a prediction. When 
you have a new and dramatic and overwhelming experience of the gospel. You will be humbled and emboldened in such a way that you will go and tell others about it. When you have an ongoing, present tense experience of the gospel, you can say, look at where I used to be blind, but now I see. And so the application is not be like the blind man. The application is this. We must long to have our blindness turned to sight. Don't tell a numb man to tell you what he feels. Don't tell a blind man to tell you what he sees. But when you feel and when you see, then you can tell. John's desire is that we would see Christ and believe. And as we watch Christ at work turning our spiritual blindness into sight, we can do that. When we were blind, but then we see, then we can be like the blind man. Then we will have something to tell others. Do you remember uh, verse 3? Jesus says, this is how the works of God are displayed. The works of God are displayed when God causes blind men and women to cry out because he's given them sight. That's what's being talked about here. Seeing Christ exalted in worship, uh, if you have been reading my email newsletters, which I know many of you do, I've asked that you pray as I preach today that Christ would be exalted. Christ being exalted is not some pie-in-the-sky, pietistic, spiritual experience. Christ being exalted is when we say, look at how I was blind, but now I can see. That is how Christ is exalted in worship. It's when we give spiritual explanations of physical situations. And maybe it sounds a little bit like this. I'm beginning to understand God's grace, and I'm beginning to extend that to my husband. I don't do as much backseat driving as I used to do because I don't need to be in control anymore. Wow. Our marriage is better than it's ever been. Spiritual explanation, physical situation. I'm not married now, and I don't know if I ever will be. But I know that even if I don't have a family and children to remember me, the Lord will remember me. And I'm beginning to see the ways that I thought that marriage would solve all of my problems. Spiritual explanation, physical situation. I'm beginning to realize that the gossip that I spread at work is worse than the things I gossip about. Jesus is beginning to show me that I don't need to push other people down to exalt myself. Jesus pushed himself down in order to lift others up. And I'm starting to learn how to do that and I'm living at peace with my coworkers in a way that I never have before. John wants to create a longing within us for that, a longing to see our blindness turn to sight. John's calling us to look at Christ here and say, will you believe in this God? This is the same question that Jesus asks the blind man. He chases him down at the end of this passage and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And when the blind man understands that this is the man who's turned him from blindness to sight, he immediately worships him. And Jesus is asking us the same question this morning. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Will you let me turn your blindness into sight? How is Jesus going to do this? How is he going to turn our blindness to sight? What ultimately enables us to confess our blindness and to long to turn it to sight? 
We've heard a lot this past year about the epidemic of Ebola in West Africa. And there have been a few famous cases and a few deaths uh, here in the US. And the, the big question is, when will there be a cure? It seems as if our only strategy, our only defense is containment uh, and precaution. If we, can, if we can just manage the disease, then somehow it's under control. There seems to be no cure, and we're still months away from the drugs that will combat Ebola for us. And so many in West Africa just accept it when they or their loved ones contract Ebola and they despair. Others deny it, hiding it from the government in the hopes that they can continue with burial practices that help them to spread the disease. And it's easy to feel helpless in the midst of it. And yet, it hasn't received much press coverage, but there is one cure that actually works. And it's the blood of a survivor. Earlier this December in Freetown, the capital of Sierra Leone, clinical trials started for blood transfusions from those who've survived uh, Ebola to those currently infected. Because the blood of these survivors already has the antibodies necessary to destroy the disease and cure the person infected. To be healed, these patients need the blood of someone who's borne the full weight of the suffering of the Ebola virus and lived through it. And we also left to ourselves are tempted when we face our sin to despair or deny that it exists. Afraid that there's no solution, there's no cure, there's nothing we can do to give ourselves sight. We get what we deserve. And so much like those affected, infected with Ebola, if we want to live, we need the blood of someone who's borne the full weight and suffering of the sin and brokenness of us in our world and lived through it. And so John 9 points to John 19 and John 20. Ten chapters later in John 19, Jesus, uh, John tells the story of Jesus' death. He dies a gruesome death and is then buried. And in John 20, rises from the dead. And in his death, he bears the full weight of sin and suffering and the brokenness of us in our world. And in his resurrection, he lives through it. And so he offers his blood to cleanse us from our blindness to heal us from the sickness of, of, his, of our sin. He'll take his blood and cleanse us of our, of our blindness and our sin. That's why we worship him, and that's why we want to see him exalted. Jesus here in this passage offers to heal those who confess their blindness and their need of him. He's saying this, you don't get what you deserve because I took what you deserve and I turned it into my suffering. And now I'm gonna take your suffering and I'm going to turn it into my glory. Will you confess your blindness? And will you long to see your blindness turned to sight? Jesus offers to do that, that very thing for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Dear Father in heaven, we come a blind people, fragile and faltering. Father, we trip over ourselves and others and Father, we're desperately in need of your grace. We desperately need you to come and do a new work to heal us of our blindness because we know that we must change and we know that we can't change ourselves. Father, we know that we do, you do that. We ask that you'd come and do that right now. We ask all these things in the name of your son. Amen.